Purple Heart. Nice left. Those weapons of mass destruction got to be somewhere. By 2014, the war in Afghanistan will be over. Nice left. Well, I, you know, general is not necessarily a general. Uh, no, nope. no weapons over there. He may be a communist. Nice left. It's Eyes Left. Welcome back, everyone. This is your host, Mike Preisner, joined by Spencer Rapone. Spencer, how are you? Good, Mike. How are you? I am good. Um, today, I think, Spencer, we should uh, devote the episode to this kind of really big revelation that's just come out, the Afghanistan Papers. You know, maybe the biggest story to come out about the Afghanistan war in its, like, 20-year history. Of course, a lot of it is stuff that, you know, we already knew, but it confirms a lot and I think is really shattering of the whole government narrative and could be something that helps move the needle of accountability or could possibly maybe bring an end to this thing. So I think we're today we're just going to go through the details of it, what people need to know and kind of how we can use it as a tool to, to bring this thing to an end. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I think we have a lot of different aspects we could discuss regarding the Afghanistan papers. Uh, the big thing, as you said, will be kind of putting it in the proper context and um, unpacking the most pertinent information, you know, that would be uh, viable within the, you know, a podcast such as this, but also um, trying to find a way to discuss this document and this, well, this series of documents while still centering the victims of imperialism. Uh, of course, uh, that's always the task uh, when you discuss such matters. But yeah, I mean, as you know, I told you and others, uh, as when, since this dropped on uh, December 9th, it's one of those things where you don't want to um, diminish the effect it could have in terms of being, as you said, uh, a means of moving the needle of public consciousness of opinion on the war. But you also need to find a way to engage with these things critically. Uh, because there's been so many people, especially those who have been the victims of U.S. imperialist violence, who have been uh, stating how absurd uh, this war is and how immoral and unjust um, this type of violence is. And and hopefully this marks um, a significant moment uh, in this, as you said, nearly two-decade history of overturning the existing uh, situation. But Obviously, we're still in the wake of it. It, it only dropped, um, what, it's December 14th as mm -hmm. of recording, so five days ago. So it remains to be seen how this affects things. But it is interesting seeing a lot of the uh, the characters who come up uh, in the Afghanistan papers. That's true. And, you know, it's, uh, before we get into it and what the Afghanistan papers are as like an uh, overview for people who aren't familiar with it yet, um, you know, it's as you said, it's like five days after it's been released. I, I think this is like one of the biggest news stories to come out in, in many, many years. Yeah. But already it's already going under the radar. Like, you know, I turn on cable news every so often to see what's being, it's important to see what's being talked about by like the establishment press, what they're trying to ram down everyone. Absolutely. Um, and they're definitely not talking about the Afghanistan papers. I mean, it's definitely getting, you know, a lot of circulation by the Washington Post who broke the story through uh, three years of a legal battle to get these transcripts of interviews released. Um, you know, the other papers of record, you know, like the New York Times and, um, you know, the Guardian has done a lot of reporting on it. And so like the print media and the web media, of course, is grabbing on to little pieces of this content and publishing it online and stuff. Uh, but outside of that, I mean, the, the bigger corporate media, the TV media, I haven't really seen much on it at all. And in terms of like the reaction from inside the U.S. government, 
I know that some like, you know, progressive people in Congress, like people like Ro Khanna, you know, kind of modern mm-hmm. progressive people, they've like called for hearings um, around the Afghanistan papers. But I think uh, only a couple people in Congress have been like, yes, we should have a hearing. And then that was, you know, that was many days ago when the papers came out and then I haven't seen anything else about it. So already, you know, the, we'll get into kind of how serious this story is, but it's already just like already be go, like being forgotten. Before yeah, that's that's the main issue. I mean, a lot of um, the initial uh, reaction to this was something to the effect of, oh, this will be this generation's version of the Pentagon Papers. Right. I'm sure you've seen that uh, refrain mm-hmm. a few times. It, the difference is, though, is that when the Pentagon Papers dropped, um, well, I mean, when that happened in the early 70s, that was uh, a sensation. I mean, that's all right. that, you know, anyone, whether mainstream or alternative press, that's all anyone was talking about. Mm-hmm. And the the media landscape such as it is today, as we're all intimately aware, it makes that a little bit different in terms of when you drop a story of this magnitude because, I mean, there's a number of factors going on, but we the main one is we're so inundated with information and uh, news at any given moment right. that it's so easy for something, as, even something as significant as this, to just fall by the wayside. And that's, that's really how it functions. I mean, yes, there is an element of disinformation. We always need to be... Um, very concerned with and be aware of, but the, the main uh, the main uh, function of these existing uh, media uh, apparatuses and structures is they do uh, this process, as I said, of just continually bombarding you with information that you kind of right. get lost in it all, and and that's like that's the one thing that I think will be interesting to see going ahead if this does penetrate you know uh, into the the main discourse even on the uh on the mainstream uh, news networks that would be i think a huge development because this would be something that's so significant and so important um that even in the midst of being completely 24 7 around the clock bombarded with information media and so on and so forth if this finds a way to maintain a foothold uh in the public discourse, then I think that would be a huge victory. But again, um, it remains to be seen. You know, we're five days from it. As you said, so far, uh, the trend isn't exactly looking promising, but hopefully we could do our part here maybe to uh, highlight some of the more important aspects of it and, you know, maybe get it to that level. Yeah, you know, and I think there's, you know, there's a lot of similarities in in terms of what the Pentagon papers and the Afghanistan papers are, right? Um, you know, the Pentagon papers for those who don't know, you know, which were leaked by Daniel Ellsberg, uh who today mm-hmm. is still an active participant in the anti-war movement, but the the Pentagon papers were a release of kind of the internal conversations and assessments of the Pentagon brass, the politicians of the Vietnam War, which just totally contradicted what they were saying publicly. Like there's progress, the war can be won, we're doing great. And internally they were saying, ah, we're losing, everything's going terrible, we have no path to victory, all that stuff. So it just blew the lid off of their public rationale for continuing to kill hundreds of thousands of people in, in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia and send you know thousands of people uh, Americans to be killed in Vietnam. The Afghanistan papers essentially is the same thing. Um, it's transcripts of interviews that were conducted by the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, known as SIGAR. Um, and so mm-hmm. this is like the body, the State Department body, uh, to investigate the Afghanistan war, a, a corruption, inefficiency, all of that stuff. And so it's all these interviews with all the highest ranking, not highest, but like all of the high ranking, including some of the highest ranking people uh, commanding in Afghanistan. 
speaking candidly about the war. And these were like sealed documents. But the Washington Post went through three years of a legal struggle to get these transcripts published. And it has a similar effect as the Pentagon Papers. It shows that what they were telling us uh, publicly was the complete opposite of what they were talking about internally. You know, there's two big claims, uh, facets of the Afghanistan Papers. Um, the one side is that there was kind of widespread uh, corruption uh, and theft from the Afghan government, the people that were told we have to keep in power and put in power and are our partners or whatever. Um, but that the other side, which I think is the more significant side, is kind of the fabrication of evidence that there's progress in the war, particularly under Obama, where he's like, please provide data that shows we are doing well. So they would just come up with what kind of surveys we can do that show some kind of progress, uh, you know, but it was all just faked data and then they would conceal anything which was, or everything that showed that the everything was going in the opposite direction. So this whole public and private position to the American people, they say, yes, everything's great. Look at this, this, and this. We're doing awesome. And then internally, they're saying, we are fucked. Uh, we don't know what to do. Uh, we'll just pass it on to the next guy that comes in. But I think one of the, the reasons that I you know just mentioned, Spencer, that it's we're not seeing it in the TV media um, and covered very little in the mainstream media in general, even, even in the print media, um, which has an interest in just putting out as many stories as possible because they're like click-based for ad yeah. revenue and things like that. So right. just the fact that it's getting out on even some of these mainstream websites doesn't mean much. It's like buried on their pages and it's just yeah. to like generate revenue for them. Um, you know, they republish anything that comes out that they think they can get a click on. Um, sure. But there's the a big difference with the Pentagon Papers. The Pentagon Papers came out in the midst of like a surging anti-war movement that was really like shutting the country down. And so like, if there was any things, anything significant that came out about the Vietnam War, it was forced to be in the public consciousness. It was forced right. into the media because people were like shutting down campuses, workplaces, streets. It was like a time of real upheaval in the country. And today it's absent that. I mean, there's no, because we're in such a different stage in the anti-war movement today, it's in such a different state. There's not that uh, grassroots pressure that's really, could take something like this, which is like a bombshell revelation that can take this and use it uh, to, to deepen the political crisis for the ruling class and for the Pentagon. Um, and, and really, like, the, you know, this could really easily be used by the Democratic Party establishment to expose Trump and say, look, Trump has, you know, there is Obama was trying to end the war. He had reduced the number of troops from 150,000 to 8,000. And Trump came in and increase that number to like 16,000 troops and increase civilians, you know, like they could use it to indict him and, and try to, you know, expose his failure or whatever. But the reason they're not doing that is because the Democratic Party wants to continue the Afghanistan war. I mean, all of the right. mainstream candidates, you know, Biden, Warren, Buttigieg, uh, Klobuchar, all of these people, none of them, none of them say they want to end the Afghanistan war. They say the same thing that the people are saying in these Afghanistan papers saying, ah, oh, we have to meet certain benchmarks. We can't end it until we've achieved our our goals and all that stuff, which the Pen Afghanistan papers show are impossible benchmarks. Um, so they want to continue it indefinitely. And so that's why, you know, the the cable news media is 100 percent focused on these impeachment, this impeachment thing with Trump, which I think is like a fantasy that, that that's going to go through. But, you know, it's because they themselves want the Afghanistan war to continue. Yeah, I, I mean, the main aspect of that is that many of the the Democrats who try to masquerade as some type of resistance to Trump, I mean, they themselves are implicated uh, in this ongoing uh, war. And, I mean, and the fact of the matter is, it's striking. You know, you have eight years of a Republican president, eight years of a Democratic mm -hmm. president, and now we're in a Republican administration again. And the Afghanistan papers, um, as it's briefed in the um, 
the write-up in the Washington Post, it opens with saying something to the effect of there are radically different strategies between um, the Bush administration and the Obama administration. And mm-hmm. we could debate that. But the fact of the matter is, no matter which angle uh, each administration has approached this conflict, it's just really led to the same results of increasing civilian casualties, um, increasing uh, destruction and destabilization. Um, you know, the, I mean, let alone the, you know, there's 157,000 who have died as a result of the occupation of Afghanistan. But I mean, the millions of dis- refugees and displaced peoples that have resulted uh, from this. So, I mean, it, it's really frustrating too, when you think of, you know, in 2006, um, during the last two years of the Bush administration, the Democrats, you know, uh, in Congress, they win the midterms and Obama comes to office in 2008. And I mean, he has a mandate pretty much mm-hmm. to really do what he wants, especially in terms of foreign policy. And, you know, what happens a year or two later is the surge. Um, you know, mm-hmm. he gives his speech at West Point and then, right. uh, you know, Petraeus starts to, this is when his, you know, rise to, to stardom and military circles really yep. starts to happen and so on and so forth. And, and here we are, you know, once again, and then it just, uh, yeah, in terms of the impeachment, like from a strategic perspective, if, you know, Trump could go down from this, then by all means, but more and more, it seems like almost, as you know, she said, it's more of a cynical move on behalf of certain establishment figures so that it allows them to uh, detract from their own complicity in things as, uh, you know, vile as this um, Afghanistan war. I wanted to, there's a particularly interesting section from uh, the write-up in the Washington Post. You mentioned the uh, these papers they would write up that kind of just had like these pseudoscientific uh, right. <laughs> you know, justifications for uh, how they presented information. And there's a really interesting moment. Um, uh, they're, they're quoting uh, John Garofano. He's the Naval War College strategist. He advised Marines in Helmand Province in 2011. But uh, he speaks to these, like, these charts and these graphs and these figures they'd print on. He says, uh, and I quote, they had a really expensive machine that would print the really large pieces of paper like in a print shop there would be a caveat that these are not actually scientific figures or this is not a scientific process behind this. And so then Garofano uh, says that nobody dared to question whether the charts and numbers were credible or meaningful. Uh, And I quote again, there was not a willingness to answer questions such as, what is the meaning of this number of schools that you have built? How has that progressed you towards your goal? He said, how do you show this as evidence of success and not just evidence of effort or evidence of just doing a good thing? So, uh, end quote. I mean, now here's the thing. We need to be, again, when I said we need to read these critical, or critically, uh, someone like Garofno is very much invested in this being a success. So his mm-hmm. epistemological assumptions are from the perspective of trying to have, you know, an effective war fought and won. Right. But to, to see those who are invested in uh, this conflict uh, at least have that kernel of um, doubt you know, uh, and um, suspicion with what they're doing is, I think, something we need to grasp. And look, at the end of the day, uh, as many commentators, analysts, scholars, activists have said before, you don't want to get wrapped up in the debates of, you know, bad strategy, good strategy. Mm-hmm. It's it's about this being immoral, unjust, and just fundamentally wrong on, on every level if you have a conscience. Um, but the fact of the matter is, you know, now we do have actual evidence of just the nonsensical justifications that, that have gone into this. And it, it 
again, to see actually on paper, you know, what, something we all knew, something we all, and we had some evidence of, but to have this amount of damning evidence mm-hmm. is just really a, a striking thing. Yeah, you know, and I think that the actual, the head of SIGAR, the head of the organization that conducted this study, um, John Sopko, I think he he pretty much summed up what the significance of this is in terms of its the evidence it provides, because um, he actually spoke to the Washington Post about these documents. And he said, quote, the American people have constantly been lied to. And so I think that that affirmation, you know, we always we we know this to be true. And that's what we talk about quite a bit on this show is that they yeah. are misleading the public about the war and so forth. But to hear it coming from within the actual establishment, within the military establishment, within the Pentagon, to just actual hard evidence confirmation, yes, we have been lied to every step of the way about the rationale for the war, uh, the potential for uh, anything to be accomplished, even from that perspective of the people who want the war to succeed or whatever. And I think it would like, you know, getting back to what you were saying, these studies that they were doing, like one of the quotes uh, from one of these people was, it is impossible to create good metrics. We tried using the troop numbers trained, violence levels, control of territory, and none of it painted an accurate picture. The metrics were always manipulated for the duration of the war. And so they were set out to, they were given these tasks of, Give us some good data to show, like you're saying, like the number of schools that are built or whatever, like give us some data to show. And so they'll pick something like, okay, let's choose troop numbers trained and show that is progress. Or let's choose a territory we control to show that's progress. But even that, even these like skewed surveys they would do, like um, cherry picking to think what can show that we're doing a good job. Even those came out horrible. So they would just lie and manipulate the data of those. So like they couldn't even like in their own manipulative, manipulative way get anything that uh, that was useful. And another interesting quote is, surveys, for instance, were totally unreliable, but reinforced that everything we were doing were, was right and became a self-looking ice cream cone. Um, yeah. and, and this is actually like, you know, we talk about these phases of the war and, you know, when we give our Afghanistan war update in that little uh, bumper with music that you hear, we hear the three successive administrations giving their promises for the war. You hear George W. Bush, you hear Obama, and you hear Trump. We will win this conflict by the patient accumulation of successes. Our troops will continue coming home at a steady pace. By 2014, this process of transition will be complete. The consequences of a rapid exit are both predictable and unacceptable. About how all of them are going to end the war. Like, we're going to end the war, but first we're going to do this. So it just shows, like, kind of how it's just been kicking the can down the road. But, like, you know, the Bush administration, for what it's known for with the Afghanistan war, was invading Afghanistan, planning to permanently occupy it militarily, um, you know, quickly overthrowing the Taliban and defeating Al Qaeda, like, immediately, right? If the whole job, uh, you know, was to defeat Al Qaeda, like, that was done, like, uh, with at the very outset of the war. Not to mention that that didn't take going to Afghanistan to do that. Um, But then shifting to Iraq and then making Iraq the the focus of the U.S. war machine under the Bush administration. And Obama really campaigned. Even when Obama was was in the Democratic primary, facing off Hillary Clinton and all these others, his point was, we've lost focus on Afghanistan. Afghanistan is the good war. We're bogged down in Iraq where we shouldn't be doing nation building and, and war fighting or whatever. So we need to end the war in Iraq so we can fight the war in Afghanistan. And it's interesting because like he kind of got this reputation as like an anti-war president. I mean, because he was in particular against the Iraq war, but he campaigned on expanding the Afghanistan war. Um, And then with that speech at West Point, you mentioned, you know, it was like 
it was framed as a speech of ending the war. Here's how we're going to end the Afghanistan war. But it was, we're going to end the Afghanistan war by quadrupling the number of troops there and basically starting a new war. And then that's how the war was going to end. So it was like an an opposite uh, thing. And then, you know, but then he, you know, after the surge, you know, proved that it couldn't really do anything. The goal is still to permanently occupy Afghanistan. So they drew down people. And then Trump comes in, expands the number of troops. I think when in the first nine months of Trump's tenure, uh, civilian casualties in Afghanistan increased um, by 52%. That's a United Nations number. Um, and, you know, Trump actually just went to Afghanistan uh, for Thanksgiving. It was like his yeah. surprise trip to Afghanistan. And he said there, he said, we are going to stay in Afghanistan uh, until we have a deal or until we have total victory. And he used the term total victory. Yeah. Uh, but the, the Taliban want a deal very badly, which is like, you know, we've talked about that before and, and the ridiculousness of that. But um, but yeah, I mean, three successive administrations, 2,300 U.S. soldiers killed, you know, a thousand or so, you know, NATO forces killed, uh, tens of thousands of Afghan civilians killed as like a conservative uh, conservative estimate. Another thing that was, came out in this report that I thought was interesting uh, from the Washington mm-hmm. Post is that while 2,300 U.S. military personnel have been killed, 1,100 NATO and coalition troops uh, have been killed, um, that actually like 4,000 U.S. contractors have been killed in Afghanistan. That's also. interesting. Yeah, yeah, more than the number of U.S. troops. And contractors right. include, I mean, this includes like intelligence contractors, mercenary type security contractors, you know, and also like, you know, just tech people where people working on equipment and stuff. But I would imagine that if the number is that high. It's mostly people doing like, you know, the jobs that soldiers would be doing. But it's yeah, concealing no. the number of people there. That's what's fascinating to me. It makes me wonder, like the actual figures um, of you know the Blackwater types or whatever they're right. calling themselves these days, academy, all of these um, uh, mercenary groups that uh, you know essentially fetishize the idea of getting to go overseas and what they perceive to be this like wild west and carry out their you know violent fantasies. I mean, to see that there have been more uh, deaths of contractors, and as you said, this could you know include also the non-combat types. It's just really, really interesting. And I, I really haven't seen that discussed all too much. Uh, yeah, to and it, you know, it can't mostly be non-combat because think about it. It's like, if it's 4,000, these aren't just dudes like getting killed by rockets on like right. Bagram Air Base fixing radios. Because if that many like non-combat private contractors were being killed, then a lot of other U.S. personnel would be being killed also. Who yeah, doing, the like, collateral damage. Right. right. So yeah. it's obviously like people that are out there like doing uh, doing some weird shit. Um, yeah. So that was kind of, I mean, it's like double the number of U.S. troops that have been killed are, yeah. are U.S. contractors. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, we know that like Eric Prince and like, you know, Trump was very into the idea of, of privatizing the war. And, and I mean, it's possible that that's happened to some extent, but it has been happening throughout the throughout the duration of the war, you know, because obviously that 4000 didn't just happen when Trump came in and started favoring trying to use mercenaries. Obviously, this has been an ongoing thing. And that that's, you know, one of the reasons, you know, people like wonder, like, what is the U.S. getting out of this? Like, why? Why are they, if, if it's that bad, if the Afghanistan papers show that it's really this bad internally and they're all like, ah, like, um, you know, what does the U.S. get out of doing this? And I think that, you know, I think there's a few reasons, you know, and one is that the U.S. just wants a base there. They want their projection yeah. of U.S. power. They want to have some amount of drone bases or air power and, and troops to be able to be on the ground there. And it's not bad enough for them to really get it. They're not, it doesn't come at a lot of cost to them for the ruling, for 
the ruling elites, like for the Pentagon generals, like they're not the ones getting killed. So like if if soldiers are dying every few every month or whatever now, then there's like, oh, that's fine. That's a fine cost uh, to yeah. pay for this base to be here. Um, but then getting back to that private contractors thing, that's another like big side of it is there's a lot of money being made off the war. And, you know, the reason that civilian casualties have skyrocketed under Trump and in fact, you know, this year, I think we've said this before, it's the highest year for civilian casualties of the entire war. So right. even through Obama's like crazy troop surge, we're killing more civilians now than ever. And it's just because we're just dropping a massive amount of munitions on the country, all of which cost quite a lot of money. And so all of these defense contractors, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, who are making these bombs and missiles, they're having like the best year ever in Afghanistan because they're like selling the most amount of weapons to the United States. And so there's no like, there's no reason for the powers that be in this country to want to stop the Afghanistan war. Their uh, coffers are really happy with the amount of money that they're making. All of these high ranking, you know, this is where they get their, you probably know more about this than me, Spencer, but like the, you know, it's good for officers to have this war going on. They go get their combat time. They get oh, their right. promotion points. They get their bronze star. And then their careers are set. If there was no Afghanistan war, like where would they go to like, to get that stuff? Right. Uh, yeah. It's um, regarding the, um, the amount of civilians increasingly uh, being killed. So the, the actual, um, the first part of this series on the Afghanistan papers ends with stating that um, last year, so 2018, 3,804 Afghan civilians were killed, mm -hmm. according to the United Nations. And that's, you know, as you said, the most in one year since the, U, the UN began tracking casualties. So again, uh, it's not getting any better. In fact, it seems to be, you know, getting worse. Um, and yeah, and in terms of uh, officers, seeing this as kind of like a... Uh, 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 a bullet point they could put on their resumes or their CVs. Right. I mean, there, there's a part of this too where um, there's discussion on how, you know, battalion and brigade commanders would go into Afghanistan, wherever, um, whatever province and whatever FOB, and they would show up and realize that this is a complete quagmire. Mm -hmm. And yet every single one of them, you know, they're not going to come back and just admit that they... Uh, they, uh, you know, lost or that their mission wasn't uh, accomplished. I mean, they just show up. Uh, they see how lost it already is. And then they'll, like everyone else who's been in a leadership position at the higher level, they'll kind of create an imagined mission set. Mm -hmm. By the end of their time there, they'll say, you know, they've accomplished their task. And then the cycle just continues uh, and continues. I mean, again, I just want to, it's funny, you know who actually... Uh, who actually they interview for this is um, Michael Flynn, right. the uh, <laughs> the former general um, uh, intelligence officer and then national security advisor to Trump. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, when you have a true believer like this, you know, mm -hmm. this complete uh, nincompoop uh, saying such things. I mean, it's really it just it just paints a really dour picture, and you wonder like what it would actually take uh, to um, to bring this to an end. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, and that part of it was just like, you know, it was just so, I, I guess, clarifying in a way, because I just think all the time of all these commanders who will just say like, you know, year after year, you could probably, if you ask any number of enlisted soldiers or even, you know, uh, junior officers, they had battalion commanders who would say something to the effect of, uh, you know, this is the year uh, that the conflict ends, right. uh, or this is the year that we finally achieve, you know, victory and so on and so forth. And it's just the same story over and over again. And all that happens is people get hurt, people get killed, and everyone's the worse off for it. <laughs> right. You know, and uh, another thing, you know, like, of course, the 
the human toll is like the biggest factor in this. I mean, and it's easy to like kind of lose sight of the individual uh, suffering when you look at like large statistics of like, you know, 65,000 civilians by the military's numbers. And, um, you know, like you said, like the 3,000 or so killed so far this year, like, you know, in Trump's second week in, week in office, a single U.S. airstrike killed 18 women and children in Helmand province. I mean, so like right. there's, there, there are incidents like these, these aren't, you know, it's, and it's to kind of imagine that that's kind of like the norm uh, in the war, you know, hopefully the, the Afghanistan papers kind of highlight the senselessness of all that. I mean, I think that's what the Iraq war logs accomplished to a large degree also. I mean, right. and then if you want to just talk about like the funds that have been dumped into the Afghanistan war, I mean, oh, a conservative God. number is like a trillion dollars spent on yeah. the Afghanistan war alone. And that's like a conservative, like, you know, I think some people put it at like 2 trillion or something like that, which is of course is like, you know, for there to be no debate within the establishment about whether the Afghanistan war should continue, that just really reveals the nature of the government in the United States. Like it's the government for the ruling class, for the military establishment. Um, you know, the fact that they are, you know, at war against uh, Bernie Sanders for suggesting that we could have Medicare for all and impossible to pay for plan. You know, every candidate in the Democratic primary, it's like, it's either Bernie light or the anti-Bernie focused around this Medicare for all thing. It's like just right. fighting again. It's like really just a, a battle to not let that happen and not kind of, you know, have a grassroots movement empowered that could fight for things that where we get a fair share of like what the, the wealth of this country. Um, yet the Afghan, something like the Afghanistan war, which is now proven that we've just been lied to about it. Um, yeah. that there's, it's not, it's not a scandal to them. They're just like, Oh, trillion dollars, like no big deal. It went to our friends anyway. So whatever. Yeah. No, I mean, it's uh, you really see what's at stake uh, with uh, the, the forthcoming elections, because if Bernie Sanders is to win the nomination and to get elected, I mean, that would truly stop some of the, you know, proverbial bleeding uh, in a way. It's just one step, but it really would mark a, a major shift. And again, it would expand our you know, socialist horizons uh, in such a manner uh, as well. I wanted to... Uh, mentioned that, well, you know, one of the main sources uh, the Washington Post uh, utilizes in rounding out some of the figures mm -hmm. they cite in the, the Afghanistan papers is the Cost of War Project um, mm -hmm. uh, that Brown University uh, has been carrying out for uh, quite a long time. And I would highly recommend you uh, check that out um, because not only do they have the... <clears throat> um, the, the human, economic, social, political cost figures for Afghanistan, but they have them for uh, Iraq as well, as well as Pakistan, since, of course, Pakistan has been involved uh, in this conflict being on the border, the eastern border of Afghanistan. Um, and when you see all of the all of the conflicts integrated, not to mention, you know, what the U.S. is currently doing uh, in Syria and elsewhere, I mean, you really start to understand the global implications of you know, the next year, mm -hmm. uh, the next cycle uh, of elections. And from any anti-imperialist perspective, I mean, at, you know, if you're an internationalist, I mean, this is a, a necessary step is getting a democratic socialist into office here. Um, so we could at least somewhat stop this endless uh, cavalcade of just misery, violence, and uh, death and destruction. But I also wanted to um, bring up... It, why? I mean, of course, there's the fact that war is profitable. There's no question about that. And that's what part of why the U.S. Uh, has maintained a presence in Afghanistan and Iraq continually. But 
As you mentioned earlier, the foothold that Afghanistan gives the U.S. I mean, it's as we've you know mentioned on the show, as it's been discussed by others, the U.S. has certainly increased its aggression towards Iran uh, over the past few years, especially since Trump has been elected, and of course since. Afghanistan does border Iran, and Iran is between um, uh, Iraq, which is to its west, and Afghanistan, which is to its east. There's no question that the U.S. uh, wants to maintain a foothold in both Iraq and Afghanistan in order to have um, a hegemonic position uh, on Iran. Uh, And if, I mean, because there's many, as we have discussed many times before, even though Bolton is gone, I mean, there's plenty of high-ranking officers, officials, who would probably salivate at the opportunity uh, to go to war with Iran. And so there's no question that uh, the U.S. presence in those countries also enables, um, you know, the the projection of, of military fa- uh, power. Um, and, I mean, of course, this also brings uh, Saudi Arabia into the uh, equation, as well as elsewhere. But the point being that there are... The profit motives which are driving uh, these continued occupations and those profit motives are completely imbricated with the strategic projection uh, that U.S. officials um, try to uh, instantiate. uh, Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, there's the actual profits to be made in Afghanistan. Like many people have rightfully pointed out that, you know, there are, you know, trillions of dollars in mineral resources under Afghanistan soil. There's the money to be made for the defense industry, just dropping bombs endlessly on Afghanistan or rolling out new armored vehicles to just be blown up. Or uniforms, uniforms, weapons, so on. So, yeah, all that stuff. I mean, it's very, very important for the defense industry to kind of keep needing to turn these things off the the assembly line um, to be replaced from them being damaged in battle. And but then there's the like you're mentioning, Sensor, the geostrategic significance of U.S. power in Afghanistan, Um, not just bordering Iran, which, of course, having a, a you know, a stronghold in a country that uh, has shares a border with Iran. But look to the to the other side, right? I mean, so you have, it's close to India, China, and Russia, yep. which are the rising economic powers, which do nothing but compete with U.S. capitalism. They're a threat to not national Absolutely. security in the sense of like, they're going to attack the United States, uh, but they're a threat to the United States in the sense that these are the rising industrial powers in the world. And having a U.S. military base Uh, right next to them, you know, helps the U.S. keep that in check. Um, But it's also next to all of these countries that were once a part of the Soviet Union. Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan. I mean, these are all countries that were part of the Soviet bloc. And then when the Soviet Union was overthrown and disintegrated, uh, you know, the U.S. embarked on this path of trying to gobble up all of the former Soviet republics that also have quite a lot of oil, quite a lot of natural resources, and we're just up for grabs in terms of like which orbit of of global power they're going to be in. And so the expansion of NATO East and like all of these tensions with Russia, a lot of it is based around the U.S. being able to kind of capture these territories that were once um, under the kind of economic tutelage of the Soviet Union and now are, are kind of can go either way. They can be aligned with the United States. They can be aligned with Russia. They can be aligned with China. And so a, a base in Afghanistan as a projection of power is very much about these former Soviet republics also. Um, yeah. Again, another example of like something that America, we, no, most, none of us benefit from that. I mean, I don't, right. I don't know anyone who like owns an oil company that wants to drill in Turkmenistan. It's like these things that are like so much of our so-called national security initiatives are focused on these things, right? But they're things that mean nothing to, you know, 99.9% of people uh, in the United States. I mean, it's like U.S. foreign policy in a nutshell. Oh, precisely. I mean, well said. Um, I do want to pivot 
I mentioned at the beginning of this uh, podcast how we need to read things like this critically. Mm-hmm. And one key example of that is in the first iteration of the series on the Afghanistan papers, which again is historically significant and we need to take seriously, there is a line I want to bring up. <clears throat> it's towards the middle of it, uh, of the uh, document. It says, U.S. officials tried to create from scratch a democratic government in Kabul modeled after their own in Washington. Mm -hmm. It was a foreign concept to the Afghans who were accustomed to tribalism, monarchism, communism, and Islamic law. Now, there's so much information here that it it would be easy to kind of just gloss over a line like that. But again, when you're opposing imperialist war, you need to be very careful that you're not still uh, recapitulating imperialist ideology through the back door. And and what I mean by that is this idea that democracy, this, you know, broadly construed concept that's usually poorly defined in the American lexicon, especially when discussing matters of, uh, you know, war, this idea that it's a completely foreign concept to Afghans, Mm -hmm. I, I think is something we need to be very suspicious of and very critical of and reject at every turn. And especially when it's framed in such a manner as, Afghans being accustomed to so-called tribalism, monarchism, communism, and Islamic law. I mean, because for one, that completely erodes the national self-determination of the Afghans and what they consider to be the right and just government uh, for their people. Uh, And number two, it's a classic Orientalist trope wherein the U.S. or the West broadly construed is this rational democratic actor. And everyone in the so-called East is incapable of realizing these ideals and carrying out uh, a stable government in such a manner. It also completely mashes together uh, a very complicated um, history, political history in Afghanistan in terms of um, the varying governments that have been in power over the past few centuries And it also allows um, for this ill-defined concept of communism to continue uh, within the U.S. political discourse. And also, this idea of so-called Islamic law completely undermines, as I have mentioned uh, on this podcast before, the varied nature of Islamic jurisprudence and the different schools of thought and the rich, sophisticated debates happening there, which are just as... Mm-hmm. Um, multifaceted and uh, as com- and as complex as any other, uh, you know, philosophical or legal discourse you might enter into. So while this is important, when I say to be critical, I implore the listeners to be mindful of rhetoric such as that. And that is the stuff we need to be um, we need to reject out of hand and be prepared to counter uh, when we're um, in the you know process of trying to put an end to this war. Uh, and resist it. And, you know, as we'll discuss towards the towards the uh, latter part of this um, episode, you know, Mike has some direct experience with how, you know, fighting against the continued uh, presence of war sometimes can be fraught in terms of how things are framed, uh, particularly with regards to Iraq and Afghanistan. But. Yeah, no, that's a great point, Spencer. And, and we should get to the anti-war movement stuff in a minute. But but you do bring up something interesting too with like in terms of like the the US imposing, you know, the imposition of this government in Kabul. Another thing exposed in the Af- Afghanistan papers is that as the US officials were saying to the American people 
we have great partners in the Afghan government, you know, Karzai and his people and the government we've brought in. It's like this flourishing democracy. And we have elections around the country bringing these, you know, people who believe in democracy into power. And there are partners in the Afghan military who are fighting alongside us, like they're great or whatever. But behind the scenes, they were saying the complete opposite. And one of the major things in the Afghanistan papers is the the corruption, the like connection to like the same warlords that like the the Taliban uh, work. It's just like the 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 government that we're propping up is in I think in many ways viewed by the Afghan people like worse than the Taliban. You know, one of the interesting uh, quotes that was from it was like, man, it, like one of these generals being like, if people knew that these Afghan forces that were propping up as like people who are going to take over the countries, like half of them, half of the people joining the Afghan military are drug addicts and the other half are Taliban. Um, and so like, but these were the people that are, and that they're killing quite a lot of civilians too. I mean, you know, more so than the Taliban, of course. And, you know, one of the right. reasons for such high civilian casualties is putting the Afghan forces to the front while the U.S. forces are in the back and they're, you know, carrying out the same type of massacres that that the U.S. was. You know, interesting story. I was just talking to um, John Motter, who's an Afghanistan veteran who's there for yeah. Obama's surge, who's in about face. Veteran. I think you know him, Spencer. Um, Absolutely. But I think one of the things he said that was funny that really illustrates this is that when he was in Afghanistan, one of their command, they're attached to, if they have Afghan forces, of course, attached to them. He was in Helmand province, I believe, you know, part of the surge where you're just wandering around on pointless patrols and whatever. But one of their Afghan commanders had previously been in the Taliban in that area but then had joined the Afghan forces. And so he used, while they were on patrol, he would joke like, oh, he's like, don't, don't walk this way. Like I used to shoot at U.S. troops from behind that wall. But then now he was like leading the U.S. troops. And then who knows, he might <laughs> switch back to the Taliban if he felt like, oh, maybe I should go back to the Taliban. So like the kind of like flow in which things were happening there. And then of course, like, you know, this trillions of dollars that have been spent in Afghanistan, like a lot of that just went, you know, was like taken in like pallets of cash and just like given- right to these, you know, people in Afghanistan who were, you know, quite bad. One of the quotes that illustrates that more too is uh, Richard Boucher, who is the Assistant Secretary of State for South and Central Asian Affairs um, through like the, the beginning of the troop surge. He said the entire mission in Afghanistan, and again, we're talking about like the mission for the establishment, right? Um, but right. he said it was founded completely on impossibility. He said, if we think our exit strategy is to either beat the Taliban, which can't be done, or establish an Afghan government capable of delivering good to government to its citizens uh, using American tools and methods, we do not have an exit strategy because both of those are impossible. And fast forward to today, when Trump goes to Afghanistan and says, we are not going to leave until we have victory or we have a deal. Well, what is victory and what is a deal, right? So right. that's kind of the victory, whatever, but like what they're looking for in a deal with the Taliban is a permanent U.S. base in Afghanistan. And yeah. victory from all of their rhetoric of the even the Democrats and Republicans, victory means getting rid of the Taliban insurgency where that can allow U.S. forces to remain in the country. So this whole idea of our exit strategy is to do this and this, but, but if your goal to be able to leave is to have a permanent base, then that's not really leaving. Like we right. won't leave until we get a permanent base. Well, if you get a permanent base, you're not leaving. Like it just, it's like, it, it's so like comically like ridiculous. It's like, what, what are you even saying? And no one digs into what, what they're actually saying. It's like a non-issue. It got, you know, like two minutes in the, all of the presidential debates combined. And, and when you look at how many of these officials are living very comfortable lives now, mm -hmm. they still receive all of the, uh, adulations and laurels, um, 
that uh, they did when they were either still generals. Um, right. I mean, someone like Petraeus, uh, you know, someone like McChrystal. I mean, none of these figures have ever been held accountable. Of course, uh, George W. Bush, Donald Rumsfeld, Paul Wolfowitz. I mean, none of these guys have ever been uh, remotely held responsible for the ongoing war crimes that continue uh, in Afghanistan. Yeah, you know what? That's a great point because like if there are, I mean, if there was enough pressure from below um, right. to force some kind of accountability with what's revealed in the Afghanistan papers, which is a great crime. I mean, people died because massive amounts of people died, American and Afghan and people from all around the world are dead because our politicians were lying to keep us in a war, just straight up lying to keep us in a war. And they lied because if they had told the truth about the war, if they had made what is in the Afghanistan papers public instead of hiding it and lying and creating uh, bunk surveys and lying about the results, if they had shared with the public what was in the Afghanistan papers, what they were saying amongst themselves, then the American people would become outraged that the war is continuing, demand that it end, completely ramp up and invigorate pressure on the politicians and on the Pentagon to end the war, and would likely create a large sector within the ranks of the military uh, that would refuse to follow orders to kill and die and risk getting their legs blown off um, for something that was so clearly hopeless and wrong. So they lied because they had to lie. Otherwise, the American people would hold them accountable and force them to end the war. And how many people are dead because of that decision, concerted decision by the entire U.S. government and military establishment to lie? So you'd think there'd be some accountability for that, but it spans three administrations. So that means we would have to bring into these hearings and trials is what's really needed all of those officials from the Bush administration and the Obama administration, in addition to those who served uh, under Trump. And so that's why, like, the establishment doesn't really want the story to go out because it's not a it's a not a partisan thing. It shows the like unity within the establishment uh, about right. war, and so we need to drag the the leaders of both these administrations and, and the Trump administration uh, into these hearings and and make them face the music about about what they've done. But I mean, it'd be amazing if there is some you know it's just so frustrating that Bush and Rumsfeld and all these fuckers are just like have gotten away with with the Iraq War and everything. But it'd be great if we could like. Uh, if there'd be a chance to have them face something on the basis of the Afghanistan war in light of these revolutions. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not the first person to say this. Uh, it's been discussed many, many times in the past. Um, but the fact that when Obama came to office, he, you know, refused to prosecute uh, the Bush administration or anyone from it. Mm -hmm. I mean, set a, a very, uh, a very troubling precedent that kind of undermined any mandate uh, within the, you know, the institutional confines of the U.S. Uh, to actually bring justice uh, to those who were, you know, subjected to this endless imperialist violence, which persists to this day. But I mean, I mean, that just goes to show you. I mean, how you know, we've mentioned on the show before the the Gramsci quote, the the historical unity of the ruling class is realized in the state. But I mean, this is a glaring example of that. I mean. Their solidarities are going to be with each other. Um, the generals' solidarities are going to be with others who have stars on their collar. Right. They're not interested in the livelihood of the lower enlisted, of the uh, junior officers. They're not uh, interested in the well-being and health care of the personnel that they have sent into combat zones. They're not interested in the thousands nearly millions of Afghans, Iraqis, uh, and other peoples who have been completely 
extinguished from the historical record, who we will never learn about, whose families' histories are probably long forgotten because of what the U.S. has carried out in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Syria right now, and many other places across the world. And I I keep dwelling on that because Mm -hmm. for as much as these are historical documents and we could see the perpetrators of the violence, I think about how so many people who will never, ever be remembered, whose entire life story in the blink of an eye was extinguished because of the arrogance and because of the hubris of the U.S. officials in carrying out this war in Afghanistan. Yeah, that actually reminds me of a quote from the great uh, Stephen Jay Gold, who is an American paleontologist, evolutionary biologist, um, who you know studied humans and studied the human mind and human evolution. As someone who studied the evolution of the human brain, he said this in response to how science looks at geniuses, and in particular, uh, Albert Einstein and the genius brain of Albert Einstein and how science was interested in what made him so smart and so forth. He said, quote, I am somehow less interested in the weight and convolutions of Einstein's brain than in the near certainty that people of equal talent have lived and died in cotton fields and sweatshops, end quote. And I think we could extend that to how many people of equal talent have lived and died in Afghanistan from the U.S. war on the country. All right, why don't we, uh, do you want to pivot to, um, I guess this isn't so much radical military history as this Mm -hmm. is like, where it's it's like fraught radical military history right. because <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's interesting because like the afghanistan war has been a struggle like within the anti-war movement also um you know like from my perspective having come into the anti-war movement under bush where the focus was on the iraq war and there were really massive mobilizations around the iraq war afghanistan of course was always like part of that larger context but you know, it was kind of overshadowed because under Bush, like U.S. casualties, civilian casualties in Afghanistan were just so small in comparison to the Iraq war. I mean, it, the Iraq war had just gotten so bloody at that point uh, on on both sides um, that that kind of like consumed all of the focus. But then when it entered into like the phase of like really having to address the Afghanistan war, uh, there is like a major internal debate within the anti-war movement, within the veterans movement. Um, it had this, it still had this like idea that it was like the right war or the so-called good war. Um, you know, and that's, like I said earlier, that's like what Obama campaigned on. He's like, Iraq is the bad war. Afghanistan is the good war. It's the right war. We were attacked on 9-11 and this war is about like, uh, revenge and prevention of something like this, uh, ever happening again. So I did see it like tear apart the anti-war movement in a lot of ways. Um, you know, during even like the, uh, you know, through the era of like Iraq veterans against the war, I mean, it was called Iraq veterans against the war. Like it wasn't called Iraq and Afghanistan veterans against the war. And there's a long, there's a long running debate inside the organization. We have to add Afghanistan to the name. Should we start a different organization called Afghanistan veterans against the war and have it be a partner organization? And it was like a debate that went on for years and was never really uh, fully resolved. I mean, I think the name change recently to about face kind of tries to yeah. address that, that there's other conflicts people are going to want to like basically like the post 9-11 generation veterans or whatever. But it was a major debate. And I mean, I saw even it tear apart uh, that organization for for a, a, a part where there were like more conservative veterans who were joining who were right. uh, singularly opposed to the Iraq war and thought and had a, kind of Obama's position is we need to end the war in Iraq so we can fight the war in Afghanistan. And so it was, of course, a difficult thing to grapple with and a mass movement. Um, it led to a lot of uh, internal struggle and debate 
an open struggle and debate within the movement while the debate was going on in IVW about whether or not to take up Afghanistan. It, the solution that they found for a while was just to produce a shirt. You know how there's a shirt of Iraq veterans against the war? Sure. They produced a shirt that said Afghanistan veterans against the war, but in small print above it, I know some. So it said, I know some Afghanistan veterans against the war. <laughs> so it was like not as controversial. It's like, I'm not saying I'm an Afghanistan veteran against the war. I'm saying I know some Afghanistan veterans who are against wow. the war. Because there was like so much pressure at that time. So like that was like the way to be safe about talking about the issue. Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, it, again, that's why it's... Again, we, we when I say all of this needs to be thought through critically and we need to very, very much take our time with how we approach these matters. I mean, this is a, a great example of that because even the mantle, <clears throat> the mantle of being anti-war mm-hmm. uh, becomes contested in, in such a fashion wherein you have, even under the, the umbrella, again, of the anti-war movement, those who actually are just in a sense, recapitulating the imperialist strategy uh, arguments um, rather than Afghanistan and Iraq both being immoral and un- unjust uh, and you know repugnant to anyone who has a semblance of a conscience, they allowed Afghanistan to be framed as somehow the better war, the smarter war, the one that made sense. And of course, if you truly are anti-war, uh, morally and ethically, then Afghanistan is without question a war that needs to be opposed uh, assiduously and with great energy. Uh, and that's really, I mean, that's the bottom line on all of this. I mean, there is no place for an imperialist military force such as the U.S.'s to be interfering in the affairs of other countries from any any position of uh, moral or ethical uh, certainty. And really, I can't emphasize enough how electing Bernie Sanders might be one small tep- step towards completely dismantling this ongoing uh, military just uh, institution, this military industrial complex mm-hmm. that allows the perpetuation of violence in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere to the benefit of a very small portion of not only the U.S. population, but the entire world's population. As you know, as Bernie has said many times, I mean, it's, it's a fraction uh, of the 1% at this point that constitutes the true um, brokers of power. So again, it's, it's a rather somber note uh, uh, to end on in some ways, but we need to, to arm ourselves. I mean, intellectually, politically, uh, with, you know, a, a critical perspective that allows us to truly articulate a, uh, a, a standpoint that is anti-war, not anti-bad strategy, mm-hmm. not uh, anti this commander, that commander, but anti-war, full stop, without question. And if we could do that, then we could truly build a movement. Something that's long overdue and maybe could redeem uh, what happened over the past 20 years with, you know, the failures of bringing uh, this war to an end. But I do, I guess, you know, not to ramble too long, but I open this up with discussing critical thinking and I end this with discussing critical thinking. I think we also need to be very leery of fetishizing action for action's sake. Right. Um, And this is why I'm saying we need to take time and think things through. Yes, we're running out of time, but we also don't want to rush into 
something that turns into, as you described earlier, Mike, you know, uh, a splintered anti-war movement. I mean, I mean, Zizek many times talks about reversing the theses on Feuerbach, number 11, you know, Marx, instead of the philosophers have only interpreted the world, the point, however, is to change it. Maybe we should reverse that and think like, well, yeah, we made attempts to change, but maybe we need to radically rethink, radically reformulate. And I think if we could do that, that would be the true first step uh, towards uh, finding a way of getting out of this situation uh, we're currently in. That's right. And, you know, just one more anecdote from the the era we went through the Afghanistan war and the anti-war movement, like, you know, I remember like um, when Obama was running like mass anti-war demonstrations, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, I started to notice people would start bringing Obama signs to the anti-war protest. Yeah. So of course there was a lot of well-meaning people in the anti-war movement who kind of bought Obama's like rhetoric, but also the kind of perspective of what it means to be anti-war. And I think that that's what's important for people kind of in the broader sense to take away is, you know, and, and no, none of the democratic candidates are, are perfect on this. Um, most of them are completely bad on it, but there's a big difference between being anti-war and kind of having an actual understanding and being anti-imperialist. Right. And I think that the, the Afghanistan, for Afghanistan to kind of be considered maybe the good war or the right war by people who are well-meaning anti-war people who oppose the Iraq war for all the right reasons, but saw the rationale from the government about the Afghanistan war. I mean, understanding it, uh, you know, anti, we're not anti-imperialist for the sake of like pacifism or like not using violence. It's like an understanding of the economic stage that capitalism is in. Imperialism is right. a stage of capitalist development, of advanced capitalism when it's expanded as far as it can expand within its own borders and must expand out competing with other imperialist powers, uh, capturing co colonized and formerly colonized places so they can continue to expand profits because capitalism is about constantly expanding profits or you collapse. And so when you've expanded profits as much as you can, you have to use the military to expand profits uh, further to get new markets, new resources, and things like that. That's imperialism. And if you understand imperialism, you understand that no U.S. action or war or occupation or anything is good. It's all imperialist. It's all for that, that goal. So no matter how good the rationale sounds or how just the rationale sounds, um, it, it serves that, that purpose. And so that's what we have to hold our politicians' feet to the fire on. It's like we have to create that pressure from below. Right. Um, well, of course, I think you know Sanders is far and away the best foreign policy candidate. He needs to be pushed on so many of these things also. And sure. we can't create that pressure without a real understanding of what what imperialism is. And so it's not so much it's not just about you know condemning a particular war, but putting it within that larger framework of what all what the whole of U.S. foreign policy is about. And so I think we have a big a big task ahead of us now. I mean, I think that the, Af like I said in the beginning, the Afghanistan papers are explosive. It's a bombshell. It blows the lid off the entire sham of the war. It could be the nail in the coffin for this entire thing. Finally stop the bloodletting. Finally let the Afghanistan people uh, chart their own path. But it, the nail the nail's not going to hammer itself in on its own. It, the nail has to be hammered in the coffin by a, a grassroots independent movement this is a big, it will only remain to be a big and explosive story and something that can end the war if if we're the ones that make it that. Yeah. As the holidays approach, you know, we wish the best to all of our listeners. We can't thank you enough uh, for your continued support, uh, for your your emails. Uh, we, we do read them um, and we really uh, are truly appreciative uh, for your your commentary, your suggestions, um, and you know, being a part of this uh, this podcast. Happy holidays, everyone! Happy New Year! And we are going to take you out with a little bit of radical military history. Mm -hmm.
Because this episode was dedicated to the war in Afghanistan, I wanted to highlight an Afghanistan veteran who played a major role in fighting against the Afghanistan war. Uh, his name was Jacob David George. Jacob served three tours in Afghanistan. And when he got out of the military, he uh, set out to tell the truth about the war and try to organize against it by telling his own personal stories of what happened there and building anti-war consciousness around the country. He uh, did something called the Ride Till the End, where he rode his bike across the country uh, to community meetings and music venues to um, sing anti-war songs and talk about his experiences and uh, try to build, build that public consciousness against the war in Afghanistan, which, you know, when he started out was a time we referred to earlier when uh, many people weren't so focused on the Afghanistan war. And he very much made it a point to try to get people to focus on the Afghanistan war. Um, I met Jacob in October of 2011 uh, when there was a mass mobilization in Washington, D.C. for the 10th anniversary of the Afghanistan war. But Veterans for Peace and IVAW and others had a, held a um, big mobilization in D.C. to mark, mark 10 years of the war. Um, Jacob performed at that and was a part of the demonstrations uh, that took place for many days uh, in Washington, D.C. to mark that anniversary. In 2012, uh, Jacob actually uh, took part in the mass dem demonstration in Chicago against NATO, against the NATO summit that was happening there. And Jacob was one of several veterans, um, but one of the few Afghanistan war veterans there uh, who uh, marched to, to the NATO summit and actually threw his medals that he had gotten in Afghanistan uh, over the fence where the police were barricading the NATO summit uh, in a repudiation of what he had done in Afghanistan and to make that uh, make a political statement to the world about how he felt, about how he was honored for his service. He was also a founder of Afghanistan Veterans Against the War, which is a later offshoot of Iraq Veterans Against the War. In addition to kind of generally building opposition to the Afghanistan war, um, Jacob is also very well known for raising the concept of what's called moral injury. And within the kind of broader discussion about post-traumatic stress disorder, the suicide epidemic in the military, Jacob kind of really tried to push to the forefront this term moral injury, saying that it's not just that people aren't just traumatized because they had bullets flying at them or there were explosions or they saw people injured or killed, um, but that there, there is a real reason to feel guilt about what we were part of um, because it was uh, morally wrong, you know, morally hurting people that we never should have hurt um, and how that that plays into the mental health of, of veterans, something that uh, he really pushed for inside the VA um, and inside the military and veterans community to recognize as an aspect to try to help uh, help people who were dealing with the kinds of things he was dealing with. And the kind of um, the way that the term moral injury is understood today is in large part a credit uh, to the work of Jacob, um, spreading this as a concept and really trying to advance this as something that people understood and after three combat tours in Afghanistan, Jacob actually returned to Afghanistan uh, as a peace activist for an entire summer with an organization called Afghan Youth Peace Volunteers, where he went to Afghanistan on a completely different basis um, to uh, meet the people that he was told were his enemies, uh, to build with them, and to do a, you know kind of community service, if you will. And I think that was a very powerful thing that he did. And of course, Jacob, especially after that experience, always made a point to highlight the experience of the Afghan people, push them to the forefront and all of the anti-war work 
uh, that he did. It was an example that uh, all of us should follow in doing this work. But after so many years of being such a powerful advocate, uh, on September 17th, 2014, uh, Jacob, uh, Jacob lost his life to suicide. He was 32 years old. He lost his life to suicide uh, just days after Obama uh, made his big announcement about ending the Afghanistan war. Uh, but the end of the Afghanistan war included about 10,000 U.S. troops remaining in the country. So although it's a tragic radical military history, I think it's one that, number one, we can use his story, uh, his words, his music uh, to try to help and reach others who are in his position, to help each other uh, when we're in these situations, to push us to reach out to each other and reach out for help when we're in these situations, but also to highlight something that we've talked about throughout this episode is what is the real history of the Afghanistan war and what is the real impact uh, of the gravity of what, we've, of what we have found to be in the Afghanistan papers. And Jacob David George uh, is one of those people uh, a chapter in that history and specifically related uh, to the lies that were perpetrated under the Obama administration. So we leave you with one of the few uh, recorded testimonies of Jacob David George, as well as some of his music. If you'd like to hear more, he has an album called Soldier's Heart, which you could find on uh, Spotify and Apple and, and other streaming platforms. Uh, and there's also a website, a memorial site called davidjacobgeorge.org, uh, where you can find out uh, the efforts that his family and friends have taken to try to help other veterans uh, like him. And there's ways you can find out more about him, his story, uh, and ways to contribute in his honor. And we can all honor his life by carrying on his legacy of solidarity with the Afghan people and action to bring about the end of the war. I've got to set a timer if you all heard me yesterday. I'm a hillbilly from Arkansas. I get a little carried away sometimes when I start talking. I can't help but tell stories. So I'm a three-tour veteran of the war in Afghanistan. I did my first tour when I was 19, my second in 2002. My first was in 2001, about a month after September 11th. My third was 2003 and then 2004. That was all before I was 23. Obviously, I had some serious issues after that. Uh, I really related to a lot of things that were shared here today in terms of brother being different when he comes home, especially. I have a brother who's nine years younger than me, and when I came home, he didn't recognize me. He even said, you're not my brother anymore. I didn't really understand what that meant at the time. It was taking me a while to get to where I can grasp what that means. And I thank him for saying that to me. I also had a similar experience that, that was shared in the beginning of this in terms of mass wholesale slaughter in Afghanistan and picking through body parts. And, and that was very formative for me in understanding what war is and how it works and, and ultimately my injuries and what they are. So obviously, I have post-traumatic stress. If I didn't, there would be a greater issue here. <laughs> and uh, it took me a long time to get to the point where I could go to the VA and start asking for help, but I did. 
So what I wanted to talk about was that experience of going through it and making myself go through that, even though there are all these hurdles that we heard about today. So I volunteer for this program called Cognitive Processing Therapy, and to the VA, this is the Cadillac of treating PTSD. And it's basically in the title. What you do is you write like 10-page narratives, handwritten of these, this one experience that supposedly traumatized you, and you do it over and over and over. I did this for about three months, once a week all through the winter. And you also tell your story over and over. But about halfway through this therapy, Dr. J, that's what I refer to her as, I started to realize that I already do this. I've been riding my bicycle around the country for about three years now, playing music about the war and telling my story. And I'm already processing this. I've done cognitive processing. So I said, Dr. Jacobs, I need to process something else because I've already done this. Can we do that? And I have to say, hold on a second. She was about my age and she really did want to help me. So she was pretty much open to most of the things I wanted to do. I have to say that not everyone at the VA uh, is a complete butthole. There are people who, they, who want to help. The problem is the institution isn't designed to address the depths of the wounds that we have. Like PTSD is a reference to a fancy word that the clinical community uses to categorize what we go through. And it's based largely on psychological developments, you know, reactionary behavior, lack of emotional intuition or intelligence, polarizing situations, paranoia, the list goes on. So these are things that are used to look at mental health, but they don't really look at the soul and how the soul's been injured in war and what that is. So I was like, Dr. Jacobs, we need to start talking about my brain. We start talking about my soul if you really want to help me. And I think this might help you help other people in the future if you really want to help people. So, I talked to her about all these things I've been doing, riding my bicycle, telling my story, all these things I've been taking on and how something is still wrong. It doesn't matter what I do. I've done warrior dances, I've done sweat lodges, I've done vision quests, I've done a whole variety of different types of energy works, and, and I've tried every single thing that someone will bring to me to help with PTSD, and I think every one of them helps in its own way, but there's no like one way to get rid of post-traumatic stress disorder. So I said, Dr. Jacobs, there is one thing that I went through that had a very profound effect on me, and I want to share that with you, and it's politically loaded. She's like, okay. She tried to steer me away from politics when I would talk to her about my injuries. I see them inseparable. I said, I marched with my brothers and sisters to the NATO summit and I threw my medals back. And the, the act of throwing released something inside of me. I don't know what it is. I'm still trying to figure it out. 
but it played a role in healing my soul. And it was a very transformative event. And I want to talk to you about that. So John, Dr. J was like, okay, we can talk about that. Uh, so I processed this event with her. And afterwards we talked about how the VA could never endorse something like that. Because it's so politically loaded for us to throw our medals back, the VA couldn't say, hey, look, you need to, you need to organize a protest. You need to march to the, to the Pentagon with 100,000 veterans, and you should just throw your medals straight through the windows. Watch the park city. She's like, we can't do that. I was like, do you hear what you're saying? You're telling me that you can't offer me the actual healing rituals and ceremonies that I need and that an entire generation of people needs in order to heal their soul. You've, you're trying to figure out how to heal the mind and you're doing a good job to some extent with cognitive processing therapy. But where's the soul processing therapy? How do we take care of that? How are you going to take care of that? She was pretty, she was admittedly open to the, to the idea of it. She also said there's, it's te it holds too much weight politically. There's no way we could do something like that. And that's terrible. But I understand. And it's very likely that the VA will never be taking on that task. So I start telling her about all this anti-war work that I'm doing and how it helps me. How that's a therapy as well. Not just taking pills and not all these other things and biofeedback and all this great stuff that does help my brain. So I go on and on about this for a couple of weeks and then one day I come in and I'm ranting and raving, I'm going on about it and she goes, aha, I got it. I was like, what is it? And she says, you're obsessed with nonviolence. <laughs> PTSD means that you polarize everything so much that you can't see from one side of the realm to the other. It's just in this tunnel and that's all you can see. And all you can see is nonviolence. Yeah, praise the Lord. But that really got me thinking. I was like, wait a second. Are you telling me that my trauma the very things that radicalized me, the things that gave me PTSD and focused my energy into changing this world is what you call disorderly? Would you call color people during the civil rights movement disorderly? Because they were oppressed for generations and had the boot of the state on their neck and obviously, though actually this is documented, there was mental health facilities opened up all over the country to incarcerate black angry men during the civil rights movement. Why are these black angry men only able to see it this way? We want our rights. <laughs> Maybe it's all the trauma you exposed them to. But what she did when she told me this was she opened a doorway in me of perception in order to see some of the things that are going on inside me and in this country.
and in this world. I started to see that my anti-war work in a way was me trying to heal my soul. And that anti-war work in particular is a symptom of moral injury. When you have thousands of veterans who are raising their voices and their fists and demanding justice, demanding that our stories are heard, you have, in my mind, all the evidence you need to categorize moral injury. Because there's a reason we quit our jobs. There's a reason we put our asses on the line to challenge the narrative of war. There's a reason we do this work. If we weren't morally injured, if we weren't traumatized, we wouldn't be doing it. So we talked about this for the rest of my therapy and what moral injury is and how moral injury works. And the fact that anti-war, an anti-war movement is proof that moral injury exists. She had a hard time wrapping her mind around this, but eventually what we had come to was that trauma itself, in a way, is transformation, and that almost every single activist that I know, and the reason I do my work, experience some level of trauma that mobilized them into changing the world, and that Western medicine likes to think that that means you're broken. So, as the therapy was winding down, I was like, I've got to, I've got to sing Dr. Jacobs a song. <laughs> so, I got really high. <laughs> I got my banjo, hopped on my bicycle, and I rode to the VA and marched straight in her office with my banjo. I was like, I want to sing you a song about PTSD. It's called Soldier's Heart. And I wrote it this winter while we were working on this. kill farmers in Afghanistan Now I did what I was told for my love of this land And I come home a shattered man with blood on my hand And now I can't have a relationship I, I can't hold down a job A 
may say I'm broken Why I cut a soldier's heart Because every time I go outside I gotta look her in the eyes Already knowing that she broke my heart And turned around and lied Summer of 2002, I just got off the Pakistan border to get out of the heat. And my sergeant handed me some orders and told me to read. Well, it called for the mobilization of 500,000 soldiers, sailors, and marines for a pending invasion of Iraq the coming spring. couple of months later and I heard the drums I heard the drums of war and they had y'all dancing all around and asking for more well this soldier's heart couldn't take it I said this soldier's heart Couldn't take it Anymore
a cold yesterday, uh, so I'm going to drink a lot of water through this evening. This next song is a piece of work uh, by a soldier on the battlefield in Afghanistan. And I read this poem, and I was very struck by the insights that this shares and to why people fight and how people fight and the accepted mortality of fighting in war. So I'd really like for you to let this sink in, really, really dig into this song. And try to imagine yourself getting ready to go through this. If I'm put into danger, I don't care. If my body is split into pieces, I don't care. They turned our maiden's hands into soil and ashes. And if my head is cut from my body, I don't care.
Now, I left a part of that story out, and I only like to share it after I sing it. But that was a poem written by a member of the Taliban. And when I read that, I was very struck by what I read because that could have been written by anyone I served with. And I feel like it gave me some real insight into the heart of the enemy and how there isn't a whole lot of difference between farmers over there defending their land and farmers over here defending their land. This is something that was reinforced over and over for me when I went back to Afghanistan in 2011. PTSD publicly because I didn't it wasn't until the past year and a half that I started admitting that I actually had PTSD and that really is a shame because I heard quite a few people while I had not acknowledged my war wounds and that's one of the things that the Afghan kids help me realize if they're this affected by war, then I have to allow myself to be that affected. If I'm going to acknowledge how much they've suffered, I've got to acknowledge that in myself. And, and there's quite a few people here tonight that I think I've heard along the way of trying to figure this out. And I really appreciate you all being here to listen to this. So this next song is kind of a heavy one. It's a poem by a veteran, post 9-11 veteran. Uh, it's called, They Call Me Son, They Call Me Hero. And the first time I read this poem, I was struck because it summed something up that I hadn't come to understand yet or be able to articulate. I knew it was happening inside of me, but I didn't know how to talk about it. And when we go off to war, sons and daughters, uh, we go through this profound transformation, basically. And when we come back home, our families, our communities, everyone's still treating us as if we're the person that we were before we went through this. Son, Jacob, possum, Jay, whichever one. <laughs> and, uh, but the deal is I, I wasn't really that person anymore. I had gone through things that had reshaped me, that had recalibrated my soul. But I also felt like I wasn't this hero that my country was projecting on me either. So I really felt stuck in between these two points. Like I'm not this person that my family is projecting on me. I'm also not this thing that my country is projecting on me. I'm neither of those things anymore and I'm stuck somewhere in between. And we all experience this to some degree, but being stuck in that space makes you very anxious. And it makes you very upset, it can make you very angry. It'd be hard to interact with people in this world when it feels like no one's ever acknowledging who you are. They're expecting you to be this other thing. So I felt like this poem like really wrapped up that experience. PTSD is a hard thing to talk about. It's this big nebulous idea and there's all these little things attached to it. But we're getting closer. <laughs> and I think this song helps, it helped me out.
to me I'm neither Boy, that lay.
You've been listening to Eyes Left with Spencer Rapone. And Mike Preisner. All of our content is free for everyone, but we can't do it without your help. So if you support this project, go to patreon.com slash eyes left to make it possible to continue. Be sure to follow us on social media at eyes left pod. And if you're in the military, a military family member or veteran and want to share your story, report problems and mismanagement, or need advice or assistance knowing your rights, including your right to get the hell out or refuse deployment, please write us at eyesleftpod at gmail.com. Eyes left.